Are you free to be the real you? Do you tend to view yourself in light of your life's experiences or in light of what God says about you in his word? Is it difficult for you to believe what he has to say about you? If you were to think about this, is there a situation or a person in your life that tends to define you? I would like to uh, propose today that the person or the thing that's most important to you in your life, the person you're trying to please more than anybody else, for example, if it's a person, that person, whoever it is, is the one you are allowing to define you. But maybe it's a circumstance, something you've done, something you haven't done, an event, something that's been done to you. That could also be something that has a powerful effect on you. Whoever you're allowing to define you, it could be positive, it may be negative. As we press into our session today, I trust that the Lord will shed his light on what applies to each one of us. I'd like to share a story this morning about a young man who desired to be free. His desire took him to a distant land where he lost everything, far from freedom. He discovered that when you're running your life, when you are the authority of your life, you are anything but free. He, like all of us at different times, needed a fresh start. In his case, that fresh start leaded, led rather, that fresh start led to freedom. Let's take a look at that story in Luke, the 15th chapter. <clears throat> Luke, the 15th chapter, starting with verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. That is a wonderful place to be, to be in need and to know it, to feel it. I pray that part of what has drawn you to this series is you want to be free. And you may not know all that that includes and for you how you're not free from person to person may vary, but you have a desire, a felt need. That will serve you well. It's a great place to be, to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. But no one gave him anything. Sometimes in our life that seems to be the way it is. We're alone. We've sought help. We've looked to family, friends the church, or whoever, and it just doesn't seem to be there. We're all alone, so it seems. 
and maybe we've even sought the Lord, and he doesn't seem to be answering either. No one gave him anything. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, that's a wonderful place. His eyes were open. He wanted his inheritance. He wanted his freedom. It really didn't turn out the way he thought it would, I'm sure. But now, in the midst of those circumstances, in the midst of the pig pen, so to speak, in the distant land, his eyes were open. I pray that that's what happens on Sunday mornings as we get together for this truth encounter that God will speak through his word, by his spirit, he'll give his truth, his perspective, and that our eyes will open. And that's part of freedom. And that's part of what it means in John 8, 31 and 32. If you continue in my word, you're true disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Sometimes even as it relates to the enemy, just seeing the truth, walking in it, obeying the Lord, crowds the influence of the enemy out. Even without a prayer for deliverance, there's a place for that. There's a place for power. There's a place for anointing. There's a place to exercise our authority. But sometimes deliverance comes simply by walking in the light, in the light of coming to our senses and walking in the truth. Because if the enemy doesn't have anything to feed on, if he doesn't have any bitterness to feed on or pride to feed on or rejection to feed on or unforgiveness to feed on, he's probably not going to stay around and give us much trouble for very long. It's like the dead cow in the field that Derek Prince talks about, or the vultures overhead. The dead cow represents those issues in our lives that are not resolved, the unforgiveness, the anger, the rejection, the me-first attitudes, the flesh, so to speak, life with Jesus left out. Oh, the vultures, the demons love to feed on that. They love to grab a hold of that. They love to tear at that. But when we forgive, when we give up running our own lives, when we yield to Jesus and give him first place and live for him and he's our God and he's our life and we're living to please him, the vultures don't have anything to eat. As long as the dead cow's on the, in the field, we can shoot, we can get a gun out, we can shout, we can shoot, we can do different things to get rid of those vultures. We can exercise the authority we have in Christ to command them to leave, but if they've got something to eat, they'll be back. On Sunday mornings, consider this to be the dead cow ministry. We're going to get the dead cow out of the field. So the vultures don't have anything to eat. Well, this young man came to a wonderful place. He came to his senses. That doesn't automatically happen. Think of your life. Think of, I think of my life. Times where I, my eyes were not open. I was living in my self-deception. I was living in my sin. I was running my own life. I'm sure others around me saw it clearly. I was not seeing. But when that, <clears throat> when that day came, excuse me, when that day came in the summer of 1974, my eyes were open. And he gave me eyes to see. I came to my senses. This young man came to his senses. He said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to de death. I'll set out, and I'll go back to my father. And I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me 
one of your hired men. Well, it sounds like he came to a measure of repentance. It sounds like he was really sincere. It sounds like he was really serious. <clears throat> but I also think that what he's saying represents where a lot of us are as sons and daughters. We come to our senses. We come to repentance. We begin to move in the right direction. We, re we want to return to our Father, but we're willing to settle for less than what our Father has in mind, as we'll soon read. Do you see yourself as a son, a daughter, or a hired hand? There's a difference between being an employee of God <laughs> and a child of God. If you're an employee, you, get, you might get fired. <laughs> You might lose your job someday. But a son or a daughter, that's forever. Well, the story goes on. He got up and he went to his father. <clears throat> but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. What a beautiful picture of what our heavenly father is like. This father was actually waiting for his son. He hadn't disowned his son. He hadn't thrown him away. He hadn't written him off while his son was a long way off. He was obviously waiting for him. He was watching for him. And when he saw him, he was moved with compassion, and he ran after him. He pursued him. That is the kind of father we have. Keep that in mind as you consider. Do you know the real you? Is the real you based on reality? Is the real you based on the love? that the Father has for you. Look what this son had done. Consider it. And the Father was still pursuing him. The son, yes, came to a measure of repentance. Yes, came to his senses. He had to come back to the Father to be in a position to be embraced by the Father, to be loved by the Father, to be pursued by the Father. But it was like he took one step toward the Father and the Father ran after him. That is what our Father is like. That is what our Heavenly Father is like. He wants us. The son said to his father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But before he could get the rest out, because I think he was prepared to follow through with his, what he had rehearsed, he was prepared to go on and say, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me a hired hand. Before he could even get the words out, the father wouldn't hear of it. It was like, it didn't matter. I'm just so glad you're back. And then the father begins to say, he said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. What does that robe stand for? Think of the significance of that robe in light of what the son had done. The son had taken off, running his own life, living in a distant land, living for himself, indulging himself, blew the inheritance, ended up in the pig pen, now he's back, and notice the father ran after him, received him, and puts a robe on him. A robe of remembrance, yes, but symbolic of a robe of righteousness. A righteousness. Think of your life. It's so easy to consider that we're the sum total of our life's experiences or some part thereof, but are we allowing, in the midst of our shame, in the midst of blame, in the midst of sin, are we willing to humble ourselves and allow the Lord to put a robe on us today? His robe, his robe of righteousness. He's the one that makes us righteous. God made him 
2 Corinthians 5.21, the Father made the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin, son for, who, to be sin for us, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He is our righteousness. We have none. We have none apart from him. But he put a robe on his back and he put a ring on his finger. What is that ring? What is the ring all about? Well, think of a signet ring in previous times, especially the ruler of a kingdom or a king or the head of a home would use a signet ring and conduct family business. So just envision that for a moment. You're sitting at your desk. You're filling out some important documents. You've got your signature on it, and now you're going to seal it with the family seal. So you just you pour that hot red wax. Do you see that hot red wax dripping on the paper? And then you put the ring, the imprint of the ring, into that wax. And there's the seal. The seal, which is the sign, which is a statement of authority of that person. And so it is with us. The Son has come back. So it was with the Son, so it is with us, with our Heavenly Father. The Son returned, and he gave him a ring. What is the ring all about? The ring is all about authority. It was like the Father is saying, this ring, by my authority, I define you. I define you. Who you are is not what you did. Who you are is not what you did. Who you are is who I say you are. You're my son. You are not synonymous with the pig pen. You are not synonymous with squandering the inheritance. You are not the sum total of your life's experiences. You are who I say you are. You're my son. And by the authority of my name, you are. Now, as we live our life, the enemy will accuse. He'll bring up the past. He'll remind us of our failures. He'll try to shame us. He'll try to blame us. He'll try to get us to identify with our history and give into that and keep perpetuating that because as a man or a woman thinks in their heart, so are they. So is a man or so is a woman. But we can hold that ring up and say, you go ahead and look at this, Satan. I'm wearing a ring. And this ring is a statement of authority that my father defines me. You don't find, define me. I don't define my life. My history doesn't define my life. My father defines me. I've got a robe. Look at the robe, Satan. Look at the ring, Satan. The robe is not my righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ. The ring is not my authority. It's the authority of Christ. And then the father kept going. He had sandals. I can imagine by the time the son came back, he probably didn't even have any sandals. His feet were probably calloused, and they, they were probably like shoe leather. And he probably didn't even have any shoes. So what are the sandals all about? I believe the sandals mean a couple of different things. Number one is he gave him some new sandals. These sandals separated him from the world, put space between his bare, calloused feet and the world, because he was still in the world, but he was not going to be of the world anymore. And also, as we see, the Bible speaks of shodding our feet in Ephesians 6, armor of God, including shodding our feet with the preparation of the gospel of the peace of peace. Jesus is our preparation. So the son could be tempted as he came back. He could say, well, I've blown it. Now I'm back. I'll try harder now. I don't deserve anything. I deserve 
nothing more than being a hired hand. So what if I fail again? One of the biggest obstacles, one of the biggest temptations for someone when they first come to the Lord, or as they get more and more serious about the Lord, they start thinking about, they start thinking about, can I fulfill this? Can I live this? Can I live a life pleasing to the Lord? So they start making it a performance thing. They start focusing on themselves. Well, these sandals are a reminder that Jesus is our preparation. We're never prepared. We could never do enough. We're never righteous enough. We're never good enough. He's our righteousness. He's our goodness. The authority of the ring says so. And he is our preparation. The sandals remind us he is our preparation, the preparation of the gospel of peace. And then it doesn't stop there. It just keeps getting better. It's time to celebrate the fatted calf. We're going to celebrate. My son was lost, but now he's found. He's back. What is that? Well, what better reason to celebrate? That reminds us of the ultimate celebration because of the Lamb of God that was slain for us. So here we are. Here we are. We've got a robe. He is our righteousness. We've got a ring. He says so. We've got sandals. He's always ready, and he lives in us. He's our preparation. He is our strength. He is our life. And it's all true because of the blood of the Lamb who washed and cleansed us from all of our sins, our sins and those committed against us. But then the story goes on. The older brother, he was in the field. He came near the house. He heard the music and dancing. He came. He asked what was going on. He was told, your father killed the fatted calf because your son, your brother, has come back, and he has him safe and sound. But the older brother was angry about that. He refused to go in. So his father went out to plead with him. There it is again. The father had, he had run toward the younger son when he came back. And now with the older son, he's pursuing him too. We have a pursuing father. The father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father. He said, Father, look, I have all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed. I've been the good son. I've been the dutiful son, in other words. But you never gave me a young goat. I could never celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, doesn't even call him brother, when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home and kills the fat, you kill the fatted calf for him. What did the father say? My son, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate because this son, because this brother of yours was dead. He's alive again. He was lost, but now he is found. It reminds me of our theme verse for this session, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. Maybe you can't relate to the younger son to the extent of his sin and how he lived it out and how he went to such an extreme. But whether you can identify or not, can you identify with allowing your sin or sins committed against you, your experience or that which is around you to try to define you? Do you know what it's like to think you're not worthy and you'll just settle for being a hired hand or a servant girl, if you will, but not receive your sonship or your daughterhood? Do you know what it's like 
to consider that? It's really a false humility not to receive the sonship and the daughterhood. Sometimes I think we play it safe. Well, you know, I'm not worthy. I'll just be a hired hand. I'll just be a servant girl. I'll just work hard for God. I'll just try harder. I really don't deserve anything. But we have a father who longs for us. We have a father that pursues us. We have a father who wants relationship with us. We have a father who wants to embrace us, define us, receive us, not throw us away. He's not looking for things. He's not looking for a way for things not to work out. And like we make one wrong move. Oh, you're out. Too bad. He wants it to work. And he's given us his life. as the power and the provision for it to work. Let's take a moment and ponder and ponder what I've said so far and think about can you identify can you identify with can you identify with this son even if you're a daughter can you identify with this son who was looking for freedom didn't end up free at all until he came to his senses. Finally did, came back. But even in his coming back, if it wouldn't have been for the pursuit of his father, I wonder what the son would have settled for. I wonder what he would have settled for. If our father wasn't pursuing us so strongly today, I wonder what we would settle for. Let's pause for a few minutes. Consider this before we continue, just in the quiet of your heart. Do you know who you are? Are you the sum total of your life's experiences? <coughs> or some part thereof? something you've done, something that's been done to you. Let's take a look at these things one by one. What have you done? Is that who you are? The sin of it, the guilt of it, as you think about that. There was a time in my life where I was living for myself. It expressed itself in different ways. In my college days, through wild living, drinking, immorality. Is that who I am today? It happened. It was part of my history. What if I would have been so plagued with guilt, so plagued with shame, <clears throat> and I would have hung on to that, and I would have decided God could never forgive me. God could never forgive me for that. It's too late. It's too late for a fresh start. Where would I be today? Is there anything that you have done in the past? Maybe it's two minutes ago or 20 years ago or somewhere in between. And it still, it se it still seems to be clinging to you today. It still seems to be a part of who you are today. Now, you may be able to remind, uh, remember it, but remembering it doesn't make it true of you today. It doesn't make you, it doesn't, it doesn't make it your identity. Your history doesn't automatically become your identity. 
In fact, the Lord wants his history to be the basis of our identity. And then, of course, after I got married, uh, after Mindy and I got married, I was physically abusive, emotionally abusive, extremely controlling, insanely jealous. Is that who I am today? I did it. I was wrong. I was guilty. Is that who I am? Think about that for a moment. Is there anything in your life right now that comes to your mind that you can think of that still makes you feel guilty? Do you feel guilty about anything today? I think part of what we've bought into is that as sons and daughters, believers in Christ, it, it, it's almost like we're supposed to have a little bit of guilt all the time. Because somehow that would say, you know, if you don't have any guilt, you know, you're probably deceived. You're probably missing something. Surely there's something wrong. Surely there's some sin somewhere. So if you don't think you've got anything to be guilty of, you're probably kidding yourself. So it's, it's almost like we, we, we've uh, been taught, by, at least by implication, um, not necessarily directly, but something we've kind of picked up, which, which I believe is a false belief, is that it, it's, it's kind of like if we don't carry a little bit of guilt, then the implication of that is that you, you, what, what do you think, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? You're not that good. You're not perfect, you know. You're not sinless, you know. So it's almost like we, we carry that because, it, and it really is a, it's, it's a form of pride in that it's false humility, if you look at it that way. I often hear this in so many ways, in different ways, rather. For example, if I say to Shirley, Shirley, you're wonderful, and if her response is, well, I'm not wonderful, but God sure is, then what is going on in her? Well, only Shirley can speak for Shirley, but that would be a common response. Or if I said it to Alice, Alice, you're wonderful. Well, there's only one that's wonderful. Well, it's, it's true. He is the wonderful counselor. He is the wonderful one. That's true, true, true. He's the sinless, spotless lamb of God. He's wonderful. He's God. Yes, yes. But who are we? Are we separated? It's kind of like God's out there a million miles away, and here we are trying to gut it out, trying to be good for God. We, we will never be good enough. You know, We're dirty, we're tarnished, we're damaged. We better carry a little guilt or we'll, or we'll think we're too hot. We're trying to grovel it out, gut it out, and try hard for God and hope for the best. When I die, I hope I'll go to heaven. That's not God's design. He wants us to know he lives in us if we're a son or a daughter. We have his very life. We aren't sinless, but in his eyes we're blameless because of the sinless, spotless one who lives in us, who's the basis of our forgiveness, who's the basis of our righteousness, who's the basis of our wonderfulness, if I can say it that way. Do you feel guilty about one thing today? Or... Maybe you've been thinking about what you haven't done. Are you still living in the land of what-ifs or if-onlys? Oh, if I only would have done this. And then we just keep beating up on ourselves. Oh, I should have done that. You know, if we get angry at ourselves, who, who are we trusting? Ourselves. And if we're trusting ourselves, 
That's a form of pride. I, I don't think we're trying to be prideful. It's not here I, am, here, I am, here I am, you lucky people pride. It's not arrogant pride, but pride isn't just thinking too highly of yourself. It can mean thinking too little of yourself. It can be thinking too much of yourself. And if you're trusting yourself, we're probably going to get upset with ourselves at times. We're going to get frustrated. Frustration is low-grade anger. And we're on our way to greater degrees of anger. But somehow we, we, somehow we equate that with a form of spirituality. You know, be angry with yourself. You don't realize you're not that good. You know, you're not that wonderful. You don't deserve anything. You deserve hell. We do. We don't deserve. It's true, it's true. More than one thing is true, though, right? We all deserve to be burning in hell right now. True. More than one thing is true, though. He counted us worthy. He died for us. He gave us a robe. He gave us a ring. He gave us new sandals. The lamb has been slain. He lives in us by his spirit so that we can live and fully come alive and not grovel around looking like the living dead. But contagious, spirit-filled, alive, full of love and life Christians, that isn't going to happen if you have a dutiful performance orientation. But as you have a revelation of your sonship, of your daughterhood, of his love, you will reflect it. And it's not like you, it's not that we're not in process, because we are. There could be the shame of what's been done to us. I've heard people testify to me that they feel evil today in light of what's been done to them. Here they were the ones that were sexually abused, they were raped, and they're calling themselves evil. Isn't that ironic? But either because of an evil spirit attaching itself to them through that immoral act, or their false beliefs, their faulty thinking, their misbeliefs, because they've connected with, they've associated with, they've allowed that evil act to imprint, imprint them in such a way they've identified with what's happened to them, instead of identified with what he's done for them. They haven't believed the truth. So it's kind of like these arrows can so easily get stuck in us. Arrows from the enemy, if you will. Arrows that get stuck in our hearts. And here we are, living our life, walking around, wounded, with these arrows stuck in us. How many of us, if we had eyes to see this way, how many of us would have shame printed on our foreheads here today? or shame written across our chests, or rejection. Speaking of rejection, the power of what has been said to you, the power of what's been done to you, whether it be abandonment, or words, or betrayal. The home that you were raised in, how the parents treated each other, how they related each other, how they related to you, um, if alcohol was involved, if uh, immorality was involved, the shame of it, the disgrace of it, if a family member broke the law and they're in jail, and that's your brother, that's your sister, that's your mother, that's your dad, the shame of that, because it affects the family name. It's so easy for us to identify with the family and what the family does, 
or what one member of the family does is who I am. And of course, that can be on the negative side, but it also can be on the positive side, things were, that were accomplished, good things that were done in the past, and, but it's the past, and we're still living in the past. And our lives are done now. Our, our lives have changed now, and we're, we're no longer back there. So the glory of the past has faded, but we're, we're still living in the past. We're still trying to live off of the accomplishments of the past. So that can be a negative in the present as well, because we're not identifying with his life, his approval, his acceptance, his love in the present. What has happened around us? So, what's true of us? What is lodged in our hearts today? What do you think of yourself today? Do you think you're wonderful? If you don't think you're wonderful, I pray that in the coming weeks, as I look into your eyes and tell you how wonderful you are, you'll start believing me. Not just because I think it, but because I am just agreeing with God. I'm just agreeing with what he says is true. And you may be thinking, well, I don't think I'm wonderful. If you knew how I was living, you wouldn't think I was wonderful. And speaking of being a son or a daughter, I haven't even surrendered my life to Jesus yet. So how could I be wonderful if I'm not even a son or a daughter and I'm living for myself? I'm speaking with eyes of destiny. Speaking for myself, the Lord has given me his father heart so I can look at you. And I don't see your history alone. I would only see an incomplete part of your history anyway if I knew everything about you. I would have an incomplete perspective of it in the natural if I knew everything about you. But with eyes of destiny, with eyes of the Father heart of God, what I see, Bob, Bob, you're wonderful. You're a wonderful son. And right away, Bob may think, well, I don't know. I'm not so wonderful. Because right away, Bob might be thinking of what he's done, what he hasn't done, what's been done to him. Because part of what's lodged in him is pride. Pride in the sense that he doesn't think he's so hot, but pride in the sense that he isn't agreeing with God. And that can take different forms. Allowing somebody else to have the last say. If you're striving to get the approval of a parent, for example, and you don't believe you have it, what you think that parent thinks of you is what you will think of yourself. It, it, but at times you'll feel ambivalent. You'll think, I don't like what they think of me. I don't want them to think that way. But part of the proof that we're living by their opinion is we're still trying to overcome what's lacking and get their approval. It still has power over us. We're still pursuing it. We may not like it. We may not agree. But we're still trying to prove ourselves. We're still trying to get that acceptance. And maybe we're trying to prove something to ourselves and not just somebody else. Do you feel any guilt today about anything? The Lord has a remedy for that. You don't have to leave here today with that. Any rejection? You don't have to leave with that as well. These are enemies, enemies of relationship. We were made for relationship. We weren't made to be Jesus robots. 
where here we are on display, just wind them up and see them play. See what they do. Don't they look nice? No, 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 it's going to get messy at times. We're going to fail at times, not because we want to. But what does he want? Is God trying to recruit this dutiful army that just marches but has no heart, no feeling, no desire? Isn't it ironic? Isn't it ironic that the younger son, the younger son whose desire went bad, is the one who ended up in his father's arms? And the older son, who got angry, the dutiful, always did what his father wanted him to do. Older son, who was angry and indignant and unforgiving of his younger brother. Isn't that interesting? He didn't end up in his father's arms. Now, does that mean that we should sin it up so we can have that much more grace? No. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. How can we who died to sin live in it any longer, as it says in Romans 6? But isn't it amazing? I am convinced one of the reasons why I have such a passionate love for Jesus is not because I'm trying to gear it up, but because I am a man who has been forgiven a debt he could never pay. (laughs) And it's like, I'm free. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I didn't deserve it. That's true. I deserve to be burning in hell. That's true. I was abusive to my wife. I was using women earlier, using alcohol. I was a mess. I don't deserve it. But thank you, thank you, thank you. I could have never paid that debt of sin. But you paid it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. He who has been forgiven much loves much. That's not a dutiful approach. That's a desire approach. And the Lord desires us. Do we desire him? As we close this time today, I want to give you an opportunity to respond. Before I do, I want to share just a little bit more in a way that I hope helps you. I can stand before you today and say, I'm a son, now and forever. That's the truest thing about me. A son, one of God's sons. I'm a pastor, true. I'm a husband. I am a father. I'm a friend. But what's the truest thing about me? I'm a son. In earlier years in my life, I used to be a relationship broker, or excuse me, a real estate broker. And now I'm a relationship broker. I love to invest with eternity in mind. What is the woe to you? What is the woe to me, rather? (laughs) What is the woe to me that is in you? The Apostle Paul said, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. You know what the woe to me is in me? Woe to me if I don't invest in people. Woe to me if I don't encourage people. Woe to me if I don't see them come alive. Woe to me if I don't see them come to know who they are and embrace the real who they are and live out of who they are and not be the walking dead, but fully come alive for the glory of God, for the glory of God to be manifest in their lives for, for him, for him, for him, not for us. So even as I say a son, that's not all about me. Even as I say relationship broker, that's not about me. That's for the glory of God. That's for others to benefit and for the glory of God most of all. What's true of you? Are you a a dutiful servant trying to be good for God? It'll never be good enough. You'll be frustrated. You'll get angry. 
The enemy will use it against you and turn all your failures on yourself and you'll live like a defeated Christian most of the time. You'll be on a roller coaster most of the time. The enemy will have a heyday with you. He'll twist things. He'll turn things. He'll try to defeat you. He'll try to discourage you because your goal is the wrong goal. There's no more worthy goal than for Jesus Christ to be your desire. Make him your desire. And here is the opportunity. I want to give you an opportunity to respond. Three things. It has to do with authority, sufficiency, and identity. Three things in conclusion. I want to invite you to the cross here today. The cross is the symbol of death. But notice, death from God's point of view, doesn't mean ceasing to exist. Do you realize that once you're born, you'll never reach a place of ceasing to exist? You will continue to exist in hell or heaven, but continue to exist, you will. Death means separation. A day will come where the truest part of us, our spirit, our inner man, will be separated from this earth suit. That is called physical death. That doesn't mean we cease to exist. We are separated from our earth suit. If we have not surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ, we are separated from fellowship with God because sin separates. The wages of sin is death. And if we never repent and believe and give Jesus his first place, we, have, we, we are spiritually uh, dead in the sense of separated from God. And if we die in that condition, we are eternally separated from him. It's an issue of separation, not consciousness, not awareness. Once we are born, we will be aware forever. But it will be in heaven or hell, in the presence of God, or separated from him for all of eternity. So death. So what are we talking about this morning? As I give you opportunity in just a moment to come forward, here's what I'm asking you to do that's going to have everything to do with you coming to know who you really are and free to be who you are. What a, what a gift it is to be. Don't try to be like anybody else. Don't compare. God, God has in mind, he doesn't duplicate a snowflake, let alone us. Everyone fearfully and wonderfully made. Don't try to be anybody, uh, don't try to be like anybody else. You, if you do, you'll keep yourself from the beauty and the glory that he has. Nobody can be you better than you. Celebrate you. I want to celebrate you. When I tell you you're wonderful, I'm speaking destiny into your life, I'm celebrating you. I know you're not perfect. I know I'm not perfect. But we're blameless. We've got a robe. We've got a ring. We've got sandals. There's been a party, a crucifixion, a resurrection, an ascension. The lamb has been slain. The blood has been shed. We're washed. We're cleansed. The enemy can roar, but he's got nothing. He's got nothing. And there will be a day where eyes will be opened and we'll say, why did I give him the time of day? But now, we are prone to believe that which is not true. But this is what this is all about. Truth encounter. Truth encounter. Open our eyes, Lord. So here it is. Number one, let him have the last say about you. That is humility. And that is an issue of authority. That is an issue of authority. Let him have the last say about you. Let him have the last say about you. And what I would ask you to do this morning, if you'd be willing, is take a piece of paper. You can tear it off your outline, whatever you want to do. And if this is for you, and if you're willing, if you're willing, then write this down. Write down 
authority. And if you're willing to take a step further, let him fully love you. Let him love you. Receive his love. When the young son came home, he could have started coming home and he could have met his father. His father embraced him and he could have said, oh, I can't take it. I can't take it. You're making me feel too guilty. I've got to go back to the pig, 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 back to the pig pen because that's where I belong. That's where I belong. I belong back there with the pigs. I don't belong with you. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve to be a son. I deserve to go back there. I've made a mess. I've disgraced the family. I've got, I got to get out of here. You're, you're, I, can't, I can't stand to be around your love. Your love reminds me of how guilty I am. No. Don't leave it there. Yes, let his love remind you of how guilty you are. <laughs> because then, if you're willing to humble yourself, then it'll make that love all the more profound. He that's been forgiven much loves much. The more you, it's kind of ironic, the more you see your sin, the more you see his love. <laughs> because you think, he died for me? Oh, wow, that is love. You died for me? Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? We think if we avoid our sins, we won't feel as badly about ourselves, so let's pause, concentrate on the negative. No, look right into the sin, and then look right into his eyes and his gaze and let him love you, let him forgive you. So, number one, authority. Let him have the last say. Number two, sufficiency. Let him love you. And number three, identity. Let him define you. Let him define you. If those are for you, if this is for you, and you are willing to be free to be the real you, whether it's Pat Kank as a home builder as it relates to building homes, whether it's John Weir as a kingdom investor, whether it's Steve Peterson as a relationship broker, may there be many sons, may there be many daughters, may there be many for the glory of God, who let Jesus have the last say, who let him love them, who let him define them, and embrace his authority, his sufficiency, and his identity. Amen. Lord, thank you for this time. Add the increase to it. Move on our hearts to move towards you, Lord. Just as the prodigal son ran toward his father, may we run toward the cross today. In Jesus' name. And embrace you, Lord. Letting you have the last say, letting you love us, and letting you define us. In Jesus' name.